everyone and welcome to this new episode of our Pacific Talks, where I engage in active conversations with my guests to talk about the challenges our world is facing and seeing them through a Pacific lens. For this new episode, I'm very happy to discuss with Stan Wolfgram. Stan is a storyteller from our region and is also the founder of Teara, Cook Island Museum on Cultural Enterprise, which we'll discuss further. Stan is also an actor and the co-founder of Moana Pacifica, all these projects being focused on giving our communities a voice in the challenging times we are all facing right now. In this episode, we'll talk about the role that entrepreneurs can play in regards with climate change and how to build narratives that can make the Pacific voices heard, as well as putting our region in the leadership position to tackle climate change. Now, on to a discussion with Stan. Stan, Yaorana, welcome to the Pacific Talks. Yaorana, Malolele, the gets. Good to be here. <laughs> so, uh, can you tell us uh, just a little bit uh, about yourself uh, and what you've done uh, throughout your life at the moment? <laughs> well, so I'm a Tongan, uh, Tongan German, Cook Islander born in New Zealand and living in the Cook Islands at the moment. <laughs> so yeah, I'm a bit quite of a mix. Salad. <laughs> but um, my life has very much been around storytelling. Uh, so, and I, a lot of that's got to do with actually around who am I, what am I, where am I from? Uh, you know, a lot to do with identity for me personally. And I've been able to explore that through uh, through the through the platform of telling stories and so that's really you know that's that's my story where I'm at and so I tell that stories on different different levels uh, either on a commercial level cultural level historical level uh, etc but uh, I, I very much use story around capacity building for Pacifica. My niche is really story, uh, telling Pacific stories. Mm -hmm. uh, I have worked in other areas in the, in, in the commercial side. I actually started in the theatre. And then uh, from the theatre, I ended up in New York at a school called the Lee Strasberg Theatre Institute in, uh, in New York studying theatre. Uh, but what it really allowed me to do is understand where my passion lay and my passion really lay in telling my own stories, uh, which are stories about me, uh, about the Pacific, about my people, my community. So mm. that's quite a, quite a journey already. Uh, and so can you tell us a little bit more what, uh, how do you, how do you do being a storyteller? What does it entails as your line of work? Like, how do you do it and, and for what purpose? Like, well, what, what exactly concretely is it to be a, a storyteller like you? So for me, story is really about, it's just a method of transfer. And if I talk about myself as a Pacific person, it was, we were oral. Mm -hmm. So our language was not written. Everything wasn't oral. It was either passed through song, dance, chant, uh, or carvings, symbols. 
So for me, I very much see a story as a way now of telling my story or telling the story of the Pacific and being able to, to negotiate or propose or uh, catalyze a transfer, be that a transfer of information, shared knowledge, or even trade, or um, etc. And so I've very much worked in that area in theatre or film, television, uh, live events, right into the side of culture as a driver for social economic development, storytelling as a in the level of IP knowledge, etc. So I very much worked in um, capacity building Pacifica. That's where my niche lies. That's where my passion lies. And so, yeah, so I've been working in major events. Uh, uh, they have a festival called the Pacifica Festival, which is mm -hmm. basically the largest festival in the world, which is in New Zealand. Uh, I've worked in the fashion industry around Pacific stories or around Pacific culture, Pacific design, et cetera, um, even in the film industry, working around Pacific, Pacific stories. And, of course, today the, the biggest story in the world globally is climate change. Mm -hmm. And for me, the, the biggest indicator, the biggest driver for, uh, for climate change are, are our oceans, and the Pacific Ocean is the largest ocean in the world. So that's the space that I'll, I'll work around in, in story. And also story is a part of education. It's a part of health. It's a, it's a part of our economic development sector. So, mm -hmm. yeah, those are very much the, the spaces I will, I will work in. All right. Awesome. And that's a, a lot of experiences. And, and we'll come back to the storytelling part uh, in, a, in a moment. But I wanted first to focus on, on a recent initiative that you led in the Cook Island uh, and that is another element of your of your life uh, path, uh, which is the the Te Ara Cook Islands Museum of Cultural Enterprise, which on itself the name is already quite uh, appealing and interesting. So, can you tell us a little bit more about this uh, specific initiative that you created? Yes, for for my company, we we um, we formed over thirty years ago, and our mission statement was a valued voice in our own backyard. Uh, and so that mission statement has become more relevant today. Uh, and But to be working out of New Zealand and telling the Pacific story, it lacked a certain amount of relevance and integrity. And so we had been working a lot in the Pacific, but really I needed to create a base in the Pacific to have credibility and relevance um, for the regional and global Pacific story. So we started uh, engaging more in the Pacific region. We started looking at issues in the Pacific region. And for us, we're very much around creating models of development. And one of the biggest issues in the Pacific was trade deficit. And there was also a turnaround in the Pacific as far as funding was concerned. Uh, a lot of funding was originally directed at NGOs. But we found that there had been a change uh, around aid focus after the global financial crash, where governments were looking for more accountability, more transparency, more business acumen, more financial sustainability as far as aid spending was concerned. So the New Zealand government had come up with a fund where they had originally only made it accessible to NGOs, but uh, for the first time, it made it available to private sector. 
So uh, it was our opportunity to step into the Pacific um, and to implement our skills uh, as far as storytellers were concerned. And the issue that we knew that we could impact on was trade deficit. We had looked at previous government models and the government models were very much fly in, fly out models and the curriculums were irrelevant. And uh, a lot of it was, obviously it wasn't 24 seven service. There was no skin in the game. So using our skills as storytellers, we looked at the touch points uh, or the points of value that lay within the region. And we were able to create a model for um, capacity building SMEs and capacity building SMEs was the global solution around um, impacting on trade deficit. And so uh, the model we created was the model of the Te Ara, Te Ara model. And the Te Ara actually translated means pathway or journey. And our mission statement for uh, Te Ara is economic self-determination for Cook Islands peoples. But the model was all around a, a total one-stop shop model where we have a classroom. Uh, the classroom is where we teach business. Uh, we were the first building to have fiber optic cable because we knew that um, it was all about sharing and sharing data. So we could access information and data for any, anywhere around the world. So first element is capacity building, business acumen teaching people about business. So we have a classroom that does that upstairs in our building. The next step was a marketplace. And uh, so therefore we have a marketplace in our building, which is downstairs. And uh, it allows our people to create their products. And then once they've created their products, then we will put them straight into the marketplace. And in the marketplace, they can sell this product. They can price it, they can test it. And it actually becomes a hub for locally made products as well. So authentic local made experience. Uh, the next issue, which is buyer. Hmm. And um, a lot of these models that, in, that had come in in the past, they would only do one element. They'd either teach them about business acumen, that was it, see you later, good luck. Or else they'd come and do a marketing program, you know, and they'd go, okay, see you later. But ours was one-stop shop. And when it came to the buyer, we looked at um, the Cook Islands itself and we saw that obviously tourism was a major driver uh, for the GDP. And so we did our numbers around tourism. We saw that globally, ecotourism, the growth of tourism globally was, was just increasing and increasing. So we based the model on our buyer being the tourist that visited the country. And so that was our, you know, that was our, financially that's where our buyer that's where the income came from uh, the tour was the tourist was the person who brought new money into the economy so to attract that tourist into the building recreated a story and this is where we we look at this museum element and the story was the story the indigenous story of the cook islands and so our slogan is you haven't seen the cook islands till you've seen Tiara museum and so basically it was our opportunity to draw tourists and, and why we say museum, because globally we looked at tourism and um, uh, venues that tourists would visit around the world. And the most popular uh, venue globally is museums where they would come for uh, an experience, a cultural experience, and learn about this new place that they've visited. 
So we created a display. It tells the indigenous story of the Cook Islands. It allows us to um, attract tourists. They come through. From our perspective, we're able to tell them our story, uh, which in a, in a lot of ways is very innovative because quite often they've only seen stories that they've heard about from, from you know, mm. from explorers like Captain Cook or people like that. We're able to actually tell them our story. And we take them on a journey from the, the Vaka migration to um, uh, our Ariki society um, to uh, European influence and then into the modern Cook Island story of today, which is very much about our environment and the ocean. Um, it's, a, well, it's an opportunity for us to educate the tourists that we're more than just the booze bus and the beach. But uh, it's also a great opportunity for us to educate our kids. Hmm. The biggest question for our kids when they come in is where am I from? Which is, you know, surprising. But it's because our kids, are they learn New Zealand curriculum. NCEA. So you, they know everything about New Zealand, they know everything about the rest of the world, but they know very little about who they are and where they come from. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's a great way uh, for us. And that, that ends the cycle. Our tourists come out of the museum and they go straight into the gift shop. And then within the gift shop are all these uh, locally made items. And they've now have an affinity for the island. <laughs> and it's an opportunity to, to buy. But you know, when and so when we talk about products, uh, the products range anything from um, goods that farmers will bring in uh, to art and craft, and they go all the way to mobile apps. Mm. You now people are developing okay. mobile apps as well. So we we have the full spectrum, um, anything from you know climate change models anything so we're unique in that way we're not a government entity we don't have to take anyone you know we take ideas that are going to work uh, we uh, you know we've implemented our own um, concepts and ideas that support community so when a member of the community develops a product we work on a consignment a sale consignment sale um, uh, community are able to bring in products and uh, we will put them on our shelves. We will sell them. We don't set the price. They set the price and we take a percentage. Mm. And of course, we talk to them around pricing. Um, and if they sell the product anywhere else, absolutely fine. They just come in, take it off the shelf. We take it off our stock and then they take it and sell it somewhere else. So, you know, we, we're all around shaping the model to suit the community. Mm. Uh, as I said, Farmers are able to come in. Um, they're able to uh, drop produce off. We have a cafeteria. Uh, local uh, bakers bring, uh, you know, bring in baking as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's a one-stop shop because we're able to put mm. money back into our pockets as well. And when we first opened, which was around three years ago, we had to obviously win the confidence of our community. And the best way to win the confidence is to, put money back in their pockets. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, we, we went to government and we were part of this initiative, which was an MFAT, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade New Zealand initiative. It was called the Partnership Fund and they had opened it up for the first time to private sector. It was an NGO fund. 
um, we were actually invited by government to the table. And when we sat there, we, we looked around and there was infrastructure where the main people that were there, people that were Beckers, Fletchers, companies that were building roads and hospitals. We were the, the only ones that were really focused on people. Um, we sat in this negotiation with government over this fund for close to three years. Um, there were issues with the fund because it had uh, NGO legacy. There were two major issues, mm -hmm. which were NGO legacy, which did not suit private sector. And a lot of the other private sector actually left the conversation. And government were trying to find ways to keep private sector in the conversation. They ended up assigning uh, consultants to us, and it was just going on and on. The two biggest issues that we had, as far as this aid funding was concerned, the first one was ownership. Generally, aid funding, you would get aid funding, you would run the project, and at the end of the project, you turn it over to community. And we were going, that's one of the biggest reasons why aid funding is wasted. Absolutely, mm. <laughs> yeah. Because quite often you're there to fill a void and then when the funding's over, you're supposed to step out, which is crazy because suddenly the void just reappears again. Mm. Our, our model was 24-7 and we're there, you know, we're there, you know, forever. That's, we're skin in the game. And so therefore we would create this entity and then we would own it and carry it on past the funding model. So we would become an asset or a catalyst in the community. Mm. So that was the first big issue. And that's why a lot of um, people stepped out. The second issue with the aid funding was profit. And it was like aid funding profit. And so they didn't yeah. like that. And we went, well, you know, we, your funding is going to run out. We're here, you know, developing the sustainable model. And if we can't make profit, then we're wasting our time and we're actually wasting the people's time that we're dealing with because we're trying to teach them how to run a business. And so, yeah, those are the two biggest issues mm. for us. And so for close to two, two years, close to three years, it was... That was the conversation that we were having. And we knew we had a great business plan. We knew it made sense on paper. We knew it brought value to community. So what we ended up doing is we ended up mortgaging our house and we ended up funding this project ourselves and we built Chiara ourselves. Um, and we've been running it for the last three years. And for us, we were paying all our bills, we were in the black, we were showing that the model was working, we brought over 60 community businesses who were involved with us, we were putting money in their pockets, we we're a, a centre for innovation, and um, then governments were coming to us, because they started to see a model where, you know, where they could invest in it, they actually had impact. So we've had uh, support from the US Embassy, we've had support from DFAT, we've had support from the British Mm. Um, we've had support from New Zealand and we've been, yeah, so we've had discussions now with other NGOs and then COVID hit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course. And how did this impact uh, the running of the, of the museum? Because you guys lost your customers, basically. Yeah, we lost our customers. Um, 
but you know the whole idea was to to have a diverse uh, financial model and so we were just moving into the space where uh, we were diversifying our revenue streams uh, yeah we were based on tourism but then we were stepping into um, other areas that would give us more uh, financial uh, security and so we were stepping into the areas of climate change uh, and uh, working around uh, financial models and where we could be a contributor to climate change um, and the other model was around actually in the agricultural sector where we were looking at um, natural cosmetics and traditional medicines so those are two areas that we're looking on the other area was around digital literacy digital mm. equity that's where we're looking at the film industry. Um, lucky because of the relationship we have with New Zealand. New Zealand's a $3.2 billion film industry. Um, and so we were working with them. We had presented a proposal to them around a tropical mm. location. adaptation that you you organized during covid isn't it somehow the best evidence that small and local entrepreneurship can be more suited than ngos to tackle the challenges of the islands uh, because they're more adaptive by nature because they look at new sources of revenue so they have to shift their uh, focus and all that and and are and there eventually on those local entrepreneurs and entrepreneurships the best solution to adapt to the bigger problem that we have namely climate change that you were talking about <laughs> yeah yeah and i'm not being biased just because you know that's the sector <laughs> i work in but there's a reason why i went into that sector and i ran into that sector because that's the way to bring most impact um, for our people mm. you know and, and like i said our our mission statement was always around economic self-determination for our people uh, it was always around a valued voice in our own backyard and yeah uh, your business and local business we're on the ground uh, we're a major driver in the economy and not just the economy but we also impact socially health education and we're there uh, and so yeah we look we we dealing with governments and dealing with ngos they have a in a lot of ways a different model to us uh, their model they spend other people's money our model we spend our money <laughs> and you know and they're they're there quite often to the end of their funding round or they're there to the end of their political term we're actually there till we die Mm. <laughs> and we're there for, for one reason we're there to feed our families and so um yeah that's mm. yeah so we're an important part as far as we should be and regarded you know there's a greater conversation that can be had and like i said there were issues that were in the way uh, with the conversations and so we need to be having more conversations and more partnerships and in the region we see the biggest you know they're driving towards ppps so public private partnerships um and globally they're they're a very important part to development but in the pacific they're still fairly new entities mm. these people 
but they're growing. The Pacific is seeing and that they need to engage more in these PPPs, uh, private-public partnerships. And they also, the Pacific is starting to realize that these initiatives, innovation needs to come out of the community rather than coming from some external, you know, mm. some external entity that has less relevance. So, and, you know, and part of that's all around sustainability. You, who's going to sustain these ideas? Who's going to keep them mm. going? It's going to be the local people, the local communities, local businesses. Definitely. And innovation, uh, by its very own nature, comes organically from an exposure to a specific context. So it cannot be opposed by, imposed by, uh, sorry, uh, from the outside that doesn't understand the context, the social organization, the values. So if you want real innovation for the problems of the islands, it has to come from the communities and from, from the grassroots level that will try to find solutions. But in order to find solutions, you need to take ownership, as you said, of your own uh, context and your own problems, right? Yeah, that's correct. And that's why we proposed the Te Ara model, which is different than the, the models that existed in the past. Our model was around 24-7 on the ground. We're in the same marketplace as our you as our you know our customers so you know we're relevant you know, and, and, mm. yeah and we see the opportunities and we can see the risks and we can see the obstacles and we live them and the yeah. solutions we come up with are the same solutions that our people need to overcome as well mm. um, what what we provide is that we provide more of a collective uh, a collective force, a collective uh, sharing of knowledge. We created Te Ara so it could be a model that could be reiterated. And this is our bigger dream. And by reiterating it in other Pacific nations, we actually, the main purpose is in the ability to share knowledge and share experiences between the different institutions. Mm. So that's our greater uh, yeah, goal. Mm. And that, that's what's interesting in this concept. And I think it, it's quite well illustrated by the fact that you're using the word museum for many reasons, which one seems to be mostly a marketing bait for, for tourists and to attract the customer. But the other one seems also as like used as a way to say, okay, we're going to own the stories by creating like the resources and the richness of the future, but by using also our tradition. And, and that, that's how the word museum come as like an interesting element, which is telling a story. And that's what museums are for. But this museum tells the story from the people, by the people, which is a different approach than traditional museums we're used to, right? And, and that, that takes me back to, the, to the, your other passion, which is storytelling. Uh, how important it is uh, to tell stories in our, in our communities for us to cope with the challenges that, that, that are coming which we call existential threats? And, and how do we create hope uh, through storytelling, uh, do you think? Yeah, well, um, one thing you, know, you mentioned there, museum or traditionally museum comes to the word musée. Mm -hmm. I'm going for it now, now. You're the one <laughs> <laughs> helping me out here. But isn't it musée, musée um, mm -hmm. which I which I looked at, the definition really means knowledge. Mm. Uh, and so that's, you know, for us, what we've done is <laughs> we've seen the, the colonial lens. And for us, now we're reversing the colonial lens and putting our interpretation on the colonial lens. So we see 
yeah, museum for us. Mm. It actually means knowledge and it's a center for knowledge. And so it's a place to share knowledge. And so that's very much the way that we use it. And when we use it, we've used it, but then we interpret it our own way. Mm. So, yeah, that's when a museum comes in. And it's a living yeah. story, not the, not the dead one, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, this is the whole concept of museums as well. Uh, there's this whole archaic kind of perception of what a museum is. But even museums have had to adapt globally. Mm. Uh, you know, with climate change, with COVID, and they've had to become living centres and they've had to be an expression of the, you know, a lot of them have changed where they're expressions of their community and culture. Uh, and so that's how we, how we like to use the word. But it is in the minds of our visitors, in the minds of our, uh, our target, it's a place to, to come and learn and experience. And so that's where we've that's you know how we use the word as well museum mm. and then that's how you connect with the future to come also yeah you know we, there's a bigger picture for us too we we looked at how we could tell our story globally and uh we're in the middle of the pacific we're an isolated island and you know, we're small populations but how can we actually tell our story globally and then we we looked at the world and we looked at and we went you know what, there's a part of our story in museums all over the world. And we said, how can we use, use those artefacts or Pacific artefacts that sit in some of the greatest cities in the world? How can we use those artefacts to be portals for our story? Mm. And yeah, we created a, a um, and this was, you know, a, a model and it was actually a touring exhibition. It toured around the world. It was called Moana Pacifica, the indigenous story of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, it was connected to these artifacts that sat in museums. And we, we wanted to go, well, how can we make these artifacts accessible? Um, we pretty much see the artifacts of having, uh, uh, having gone silent. Uh, their story has stopped. And so we saw an opportunity to continue the story and continue it into to the issues or the biggest issues or the biggest story for Pacific people, which is climate change. And we saw that we could continue the story from actually 3D printing the artifacts. Mm. And by 3D printing, then we can actually take those artifacts out of the cases and we can put them into the hands of our creatives. Um, from singers and dancers and chefs, and they could continue the story. And we actually had discussions with our carvers, and our we said, you know, what is a 3D artifact of a, of a Pacific artifact that, that sits in London or Paris or in New York? What does it mean to have a 3D printed artifact? And, and, and then, you know, our carvers said, you know what, if you can recite the story or the whakapapa of that artifact into the copy, then it still has an element of what the mana mm. that's retained. If you can recite the story, then there's an element of mana that exists within this 3D printed copy. And then that can be trans, that can then be reshaped and redesigned by an artist, et cetera, by a chef, by an educator. Uh, and then link that back to the artifact that sits in London or Paris, and then you've got a continuation of the story. 
So, um, yeah, so this is why museums, we've looked at museums mm. in different of continuing story. Um, the other way, too, is that artifacts that sit in these museums are not sustainable if we bring them back into our communities because they're, you know, a thousand years old, you know, there's temperature, um, everything, light, gas affects them. So it's not sustainable to bring them back in the form that they are. But what is relevant is the data. Mm. So we don't want, you know, the artifact can stay there, but we want the data and then we're able to relate to that. And mm. so, yeah, we've, yeah, we've had a, a lot of, you know, obviously this is, this concept of museum for us is, uh, extends far greater than, you know, we're, we're to artists in the Cook Islands at the moment. Yeah, definitely. That's, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was actually tying perfectly to my next question. And this specific moment in the podcast where I, I usually go back to the quote from a great mind uh, of ours and, and I, I and I quote to my guests for my guests to share his own great insights and having like those great minds colliding uh, during this uh, this conversation. And, and today I chose this uh, this quote from the, the very famous and inspiring Epeli Oofa, uh, who said this, um, the past is ahead in front of us is a conception of time that helps us retain our memories and to be aware of its presence. What is be behind us, the future cannot be seen and is liable to be forgotten readily. What is ahead of us, the past, cannot be forgotten so readily or ignored. For it is in front of our mind's eyes, always reminding us of its presence. The past is alive in us, so in more than a metaphorical sense, the dead are alive, we are our history. And that's exactly what you explained by this initiative of, of giving back to life those artifacts by by reshaping their use rethinking their use even if history has come to kind of like fix them geographically and historically and and so how in 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 that context that we are living in when with climate change uh, especially how can all those initiatives and, and reclaiming this past can help us to find inspiration and mostly guidance and solutions for what's coming next yeah well, it's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, um, so, you know, I, I did write something down for this and I said, look, you know, we're a, a culture that embraces its past, its presence and its future uh, as specific people. We embrace it in many forms and in, in many relationships. Um, and I believe what is of significance to us today is the, the uh, are the principles and values that are embodied in these perspectives that we have as specific people, how we see the world. I also believe these principles and values, they are fluid in their ability to be able to be applied to, to, to today's world. Um, yes, these principles and values are, are up for interpretation, that, but the people and the natural world will align with what is true. Uh, an example of this is the Whanganui River. Mm. In New Zealand, the Whanganui River was granted personhood by the New Zealand government to now be recognized as an indivisible and living being. Te Awa Tupua, the guardian is its name. The law set in motion new intentions to uphold the mana, prestige, and Māori life force of the river. 
for the first time, a framework stems from the intrinsic spiritual values of an indigenous belief system. This river is now Te Awa Tupua. The new status, or this new status, offers New Zealand a framework to chart a new course to protect the Whanganui River and provide the world with a blueprint for caring for the Earth's arteries. So to me, that's an example of uh, these traditional values and perspectives and how they can be relevant in today's world, especially uh, with the biggest issue we're dealing with in the Pacific, which is climate change. Mm. You know, it brings the possibilities of one way the world seeing the ocean as a living being. Um, for our specific people, it's always been a living being. We've embodied it with spirituality, calling it tangaroa. Mm. So, yeah. And so to answer your question, this is where I see the relevance of, of um, if you could call traditional knowledge, traditional values, traditional perspectives, and how they become very, very relevant in today's society mm. and um, yeah, the issue of climate change for us. Yeah. And, and in a very short term, those ideas, those concepts and, and those frameworks, as you said, could be even more relevant by if we manage to put them on the table for the coming discussions and COP26 is coming up very soon in a, in a few weeks from now, uh, we have seen how the Pacific during COP21 that has led to the Paris Agreement has, has been vocal enough to kind of like push the world to say two degrees is not good, we need 1.5. And it was led by the Pacific, uh, by the heads of state and the Pacific managed as a region to talk together and to force the big nations to agree on that on that element. And so as we see COP26 approaching and with all these ideas in mind that since 2015 have grown in people's mind and, and in people's awareness, um, how do you think uh, that we could do or our leaders from the Pacific could do uh, to really have those major countries listen to us? And how are we more well positioned for that than many others uh, in the world? Yeah, so I'm from the Pacific, we're from the Pacific. <laughs> we know and we understand that Pacific has more at stake than anyone else in the world. Uh, you know, it, it's the tenacity which I see, which, which is what the Pacific needs to have, but which is the growing, I feel, is an important growing um, image for the Pacific is our tenacity, and this needs to come out at COP26. And it, it's going to be a testament to the, the homes, the livelihoods, the communities and cultures that are daily being eroded by climate change. And, and this is what we have to bring uh, in, in where the living proof of where the world is going. And it, being such a small player, but just you know, the ability to bring that forward is what we have in the Pacific. The Pacific's presence, um, just its presence will strengthen its commitment and validity to must be included in all discussions and decisions made concerning climate change and the state of our oceans. So that's, that's the most important thing, just by being there and, and, and saying we always must have a seat at the table. So that's the biggest thing I see from, from our presence in the Pacific. Mm. We are small, but we're that thorn in the side 
and we need to be, and we will be because of the, what's at stake for us and our people. And so, yeah. Mm. And maybe we'll have then the local businesses be there to implement all those uh, frameworks and, and big solutions that will be discussed. And maybe we can also show the way by showing how our businesses and our local entrepreneurs are trying to tackle those issues by finding local solutions more efficiently maybe than what we can see from uh, bigger markets or, or bigger uh, businesses. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, our, our businesses have a, have a part to play. They have an important part to play um, in the whole climate change conversation because of their relevance. Uh, you know, uh, in, uh, uh, I was looking to, um, but how do we do that? And and this is where I, I see that um, the biggest issue for our business is when, you know, the only way you can do this is coming together collectively. And mm -hmm. our businesses can come together, and this is where I talk around a common framework and a common set of values and uh, a common goal. And if our businesses can come together in that way, yeah, then yes, then that's how they can bring impact. And We've seen that it can be done when we've looked at COVID and the way that a lot of our businesses have around Pacific have actually come together in that way against a common goal, which has been COVID-19 and have been innovative. They've been, they've had collective strength. They've had a collective voice. They've been able to lobby governments, lobby, you know, um, national organizations and they've, become, they've been able to come up with initiatives that have had impact. This is what we need. We know they can do it, but this is what they need if they want to have impact with climate change. Uh, and there are organisations they were able to come together under different umbrellas, be they chambers of commerce, etc. Um, or there could be organisations like businesses against fossil fuels or something like that, or businesses for green energy or something like that. But probably one of the main factors that have uh, been a divider for us in the past has been this competition that mm. exists between us. And if we can just get over this competition, this is why we need structures to get around the, this, you know, the competition element and actually come together collectively and realize that if we can pull our resources, then we can be a greater entity in that way. And the structures exist out there. And this is why we need to share knowledge mm. so we can share best practice. It worked here, it worked here. And why can't we be a collective, uh, a regional collectives as well um, and get over these kind of issues that exist around competition or even around this, uh, these collective issues. And I think if we can define the goals, then um, that can help us. And mm. yeah, that's kind of, and, and that's why, yeah, we've been, you know, even for us, we look at how we can help on the storytelling side and we can, if we can even redefine the, terminology and so for us we've even looked at the pacific region it's been called small small island states uh, but for us if we we've actually looked at the terminology and we've gone small island states well why not call us the blue continent mm. that realize that we're actually one nation and the ocean is just a highway between you know between uh, between collectively between us all and we actually and we actually share a heritage this is where we look back into our history and our past. We have a shared heritage as mm -hmm. well. So we look at these elements that bring us together and then collectively let's see how we can um, come up with the initiatives and the solutions and implement. 
complement with the other thing as well. Yeah. yeah. And we can definitely have the ability to define the values and the framework of our own economy within that uh, blue continent, within that one region that work together and not having to follow exactly what's happening outside, which may not be relevant anyway. Exactly. And that's why in some ways I'm a little, when you mention COP, well, I'm kind of going, yeah, well, you know, that's almost somebody else's game. Mm. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, you know, why can't we have our own, you know, our own drive? Why can't, instead of them inviting us to their story, why can't we invite them to our story? And, mm. um, and, and you know, we have drivers and we have value within the Pacific region. And, and those values may be political. They could be, you know, this geopolitical conversation that's going on between the West and the and the East. And we, we could use that as a, you know, our leveraging point where, um, you know, we have over, I think it's over 25 single votes of the United Nations. Mm. You know, collectively, can we also use that as, you know, the conversation to determine the future of our, our ocean and our planet? That's true. That's true, indeed. All right, Stan, uh, um, I'm just going to have a one last question uh, for you today. Uh, we've already talked about so many things. Um, but thinking about all that we've talked about uh, together today, uh, and, and if someone was listening to us and saying, I want to help, but I don't know where to start, I don't know what to do, what kind of advice or recommendation would you have for that person who would like to be an impactful uh, agent of change for our islands, for his or her community, or for the globe in general? Okay. And... Um... Look, you know, this has been our biggest issue. And this is, you know, this is why we have a mission statement, which is a valued voice in our own backyard. And this has been our issue for 30 years that we've created as a company. And so in this current climate, we, and I'm, yeah, I'm being biased, we created a platform. And that platform was called Moana Pacifica. And so, you know, yeah, people, they need to find a place to learn more get more information and they need to learn from people who are really doing it people with credibility people with mana they need to find a place to get together with like-minded others to support each other and then they need to act find things that they can be a part of or make things happen that's why we created moana pacifica it's a digital platform for Pacifica voices in the global climate change conversation, especially concerning the state of our ocean, Moana Pacifica. Um, we've created a website, we've created a mobile app. It's available in the Apple Store, it's available in the Google Store. If you go online and Google Moana Pacifica, you can register online but it's a collective a space for Pacific voices to come together and act. Mm. Awesome. Well, then for everyone who listens to this episode, go on and, and get the app as soon as possible. <laughs> All right, Stan, uh, thank you very much for your, your time and your insights and, and, and your, your storytelling uh, vision of, of our regions. Uh, truly inspiring and could definitely, and I hope it would be replicated in many of our communities in, in many regards. 
Oh yeah. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. So um, yeah, as we say, me taki maata. Thanks very much. Maruru. <laughs> <laughs>